He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. Those are verses 33 to 38 of Psalm 107, which along with Psalm 108 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, May the 22nd, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thank you for being along with me today. We're continuing in our study today. We're going to go back to Ezekiel. We skipped around a little bit in the Old Testament the last little bit because it's picking up the same promises from different prophets, essentially, is why we're skipping back and forth from Jeremiah to Zechariah to Ezekiel. And then also we're still in Ephesians. We're in Ephesians 6, 10 to 24, which are... um, the armor of God, and then in Matthew, we're continuing in Matthew 9. Now, after the feast at Matthew's house, we are now in Matthew 9, 18 to 26. So we'll start, as always, with the Old Testament lesson, and this is Ezekiel's version of the Declaration of the New Covenant that we heard about yesterday in um, Jeremiah's um, prophecy. It's the, it's the same basic promise, and that is to say that I'm going to restore all things to my people, but I'm going to restore them in a way that's different from the original covenant that I made at Sinai. This is going to be a personal covenant, and everybody is going to receive the Holy Spirit, and they're going to know these things. And so it's more than about the land. It's more than about the physical promises. What, it's, what this new covenant is really is it's a spiritual covenant for everlasting life. And so we're, we're pointing further and further into the future. It's not that the land is an immaterial part of this new covenant with them because he is going to bring them back from their exile and they are going to rebuild the temple and they're going to do it according to what he wants to do. It's not an undertaking they're doing on their own. It's an undertaking that God's blessing and calling them to do, but ultimately something's going to supersede that temple and that something is Jesus, Christ. God himself walking among us and then living in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a completely new um, day in the way that God deals with humanity when, when the Spirit's poured out. He's dealing with us in a way that he didn't deal and doesn't deal with even the Jewish people today because he's not giving them the fullness of his Spirit because they're not willing to give him the fullness of themselves they're not willing to recognize jesus as messiah but when we recognize jesus as messiah he gives us the holy spirit we wouldn't be recognizing jesus as messiah we wouldn't know the truth of the gospel if we didn't already have the holy spirit and so what paul's argument is going to be is is that now that you have received the holy spirit and with the proof of your testimony of jesus then You're called to live by that Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Allow Him to live through you. Lead you into all God's ways and into right living. So those are the basic arguments that we'll be dealing with today. But in Ezekiel, he he tells the prophet to go say to the to the people, to the house of Israel. And remember again, this is you know with prophets, there's always. When they're sent to his people to talk about what's going on with his people, he speak, they speak first typically of judgment 
And, and it's a call to repentance, always. That, that call, that, that word of judgment is always intended to spark repentance in the same way that Jonah's word to the Babylonians got that same message across and they repented in dust and ashes and declared fast days and all that. And so the intention of God sending a prophet is typically to tell the people they're in a bad place and they need to repent and return to the Lord. But they're always, when he's speaking to his people, there's always the other side of that, and that is the promise of restoration after a season of judgment. And so here is where that comes in in Ezekiel. He said, it's not, but he's saying, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And in other words, what he's saying is, he said, I'm not doing this because you've been really, really good in exile about keeping my commandments and, and making me known in the places where I've sent you. It's not for that reason. Understand that right up front so that you don't take any credit for this. I'm doing this for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. That's the kind of love God has for us, right? But it's mostly the kind of love that he has for his holy name. He's going to do something so that people will know him, and that's exactly what he's saying here. I'll vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I'm the Lord, declares the Lord God, even or when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I'm going to take you from the nations and I'm going to gather you from the countries and I'll bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. So he's going to do all these things and then he's going to give them what's necessary to now truly become his people, completely bearing his image. We've been allowed and enabled to bear the image of God when we've been filled with the Holy Spirit in a way that no one else can. That's our job. Are are we making him known? And are we making him known faithfully among the nations? Or is the witness of of the church, the witness of our own lives, are, are we profaning his holy name by taking his name in vain and just saying, you know, like they did, I'm a seed of Abraham. No, I'm a Christian. I've been baptized. Really? Because I don't see, huh, I don't see that. <laughs> um, which is a good thing if people can, can say, I don't see Christ in you, because then at least they know that you're not, a perfect representative of Christ. None of us are perfect representatives of Christ, but we've got to be careful about our lives. We've got to remember always that that we represent him as his ambassadors in this world. The way that other people will come to know him is at least in part through the witness of the church and the witness of the people of the church. What do our lives look like and what do they testify to? Is it something greater? Is it something beyond ourselves? Is it something beyond this creation? Because he says, I'm giving you all these things, and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, so our lives matter. Our lives matter as, in the sense that do they give honor to him? Do they bespeak who he is, the one who lives in us, or do they, are we profaning his name by our lives? And so it's always a call to repentance. It's always a call to remember 
that we are ever walking in his sight, but we're also always representing him in everything that we do in this life. Our whole lives testify to that. And what is the testimony of that? Are we the people who are filled with joy, filled with thanksgiving, who worship him, who do all those kinds of things, who are devoted to the word of God, or are they devoted to the same things the rest of the world is devoted to? And are we, do we have joy, or are we those people who complain about everything? Is it always poor, poor, pitiful me, or are we saying, hey, in all circumstances, like Paul, I've learned to give thanks. It, it's, it's important, you know. It, it's, it's not even tricky. I'm not, I'm, I'm not surprising anybody with this. I'm just telling you, this is what we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live. We're not supposed to live under the circumstances. So then in Matthew's gospel, remember, he's just, Jesus has just been at Matthew's house for a, a feast, and the Pharisees have questioned, why is he hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? And then the disciples of John ask, well, why are you not fasting like we do? And so as Jesus is saying his responses to those things, that in Matthew's gospel, we get the synagogue ruler who comes to him and uh, kneels before Jesus and says, my daughter has just died but come and lay your hand on her and he, she'll live. I mean, what a powerful statement of faith that is. But it's in, in other gospel, what you see with, when you see this story, what you see is, is that he has come from healing the garrison demoniac. And he comes back, and then when he gets back, it, it, he is told this, and he begins to go there, and then the woman with the issue of blood touches him. And here, it's, 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 in its defilement, Ritual defilement is what's going on with all that. So in Matthew's gospel, he, he situates this story after this meeting, feast, whatever, at Matthew's house, where he's been there with all these tax collectors and sinners. He's no less defiled, but Matthew just remembers the events in a different chronological order. But the, he faithfully tells us these same stories but, but he has him in a different chronology. And so when the man comes, Jesus rises and follows him with his disciples. And then the woman with a discharge of blood for 12 years comes up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. That's all I need. Two great statements of faith here. And, and, and it's amazing the, the dichotomy between the two of them. One of them is a synagogue ruler, which means that he's going to be sort of master of ceremonies in the synagogue and the other statement of faith is this woman who is an outcast who can't even go into the synagogue because of this issue of blood that she has and everybody knows it because she's that outcast and so she can't come near or touch anybody she's as bad as a leper and and here we go and and she comes up and thinks if i only touch his garment i'll be weighed well the the synagogue ruler has said if jesus will just lay his hands on me on, on my daughter She'll live. She, he'll raise her from the dead. So, I mean, these are two incredible statements of faith. And so the, the woman does what she needs. She touches the fringe of his garment, and Jesus turns and say, says, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well, which is the restoration of her life to her. Not just the healing of the issue of blood. She has life restored to her. She has community restored to her. She has fellowship restored restored to her this is a woman everybody else had to avoid no one could touch this woman or allow her to touch them in any shape form or fashion she couldn't come into the synagogue she couldn't get her sins forgiven because she couldn't come close enough to for that to even happen in the temple she couldn't enter the temple precincts to make the sacrifice 
And so now, after 12 long years of solitary isolation and being an outcast, this woman is restored. So she's not just healed physically, she's healed emotionally and spiritually because she's restored to the fellowship of God's people. And then Jesus then comes to the ruler's house and the flute players, these are the professional grieving team, uh, and the crowd making a commotion. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping, and they laughed at him. So he told them, hey, you're not, this is not a place for mourning. There's no reason for you all to be here, because you're only here to mourn, and so you need to go away, because she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And they laugh, because they know the difference. <laughs> between somebody who's sleeping and somebody who's died. They've stopped breathing. It's not that they're breathing more shallowly. It's that they're not breathing at all, and they know that. All these people know that. That's the reason they laugh at him. But then he puts them outside. He goes in, takes her by the hand, and she arose. And the report of this went through all that district. They didn't say, oh, he woke her up. That wasn't the report. The report was he raised this girl from the dead. We know that she was dead. We were already gathered to mourn her passing. And here comes Jesus and everything changes. And so Paul sees the, all these things as a spiritual battle. And it's the most important thing. It's the first thing that I forgot when I went and pastored a church. About two years in, I began to like have battles all the time with people. It was an ugly thing for about a year, year and a half. Um, and it was difficult and it was tough. And I was constantly calling bishops and other people and saying, what do I do? How do I deal with this? And it just got further and further out of hand. We brought in consultants. We did all kinds of things to try and salvage these relationships. And, and the reality was is that none of us were praying about this. We were allowing Satan to come between us as human beings and cause us to fight and fuss and fume, and, and it ripped the church apart, and then it ripped the witness of the church apart. But Paul says, here's the thing that you've got to always remember, is that anything that attempts to tear the fabric of God's people, that attempts to destroy fellowship, is actually an attempt to destroy the church, and it's from without, not within. The main battle you have to fight is not with those people. The main battle we have to fight is with Satan, because he's the one who's trying to make this happen. And that's what Paul says. Don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And that's the, the how do you wrestle with them? How do you fight these battles? Well, you fight them on your knees. You fight them in prayer. But you also do what Paul says, which is to take on the whole armor of God that you can withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. He says, put on the belt of truth. Allow that to be the thing that's, that's important, that holds everything together. Put that on. And then put on the breastplate of righteousness. Live in such a way that, that you give witness to, that your, your character is unassailable. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. And you do that by putting off sin. You do that by repentance. And you do that by recognizing what God wants. And then you become that person and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to fight the one that's doing this, not a human being. I'm going I'm I'm to bring peace to this situation in whatever way I need to do that. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, which you can extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. 
That's a really important thing, that that faith that, that I'm called to be here and I'm, I'm standing where I'm supposed to be and I'm fighting this battle not offensively, but I'm fighting it defensively. You can come at me all you want, but, but I'm, I'm prepared to stand here in faith and take all that. <clears throat> and then he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which is the, the, the most important thing in the in the whole thing it's what jesus did when he was met with the temptations in the wilderness right he used the word of god he refuted every single one of those things stood against them all in that one thing with the word of god that was his response to every temptation by satan but all these things were necessary and 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 it's necessary for us to be deeply rooted in the word of god if we're to take up the word of god as the sword of the spirit and we're to pray at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication he says, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. He's in prison here. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And, and those are important things. We need, we need to be able to put on God, put on Christ like a garment because you were clothed with him in baptism and clothed with his righteousness, and that's an alien righteousness because it's his. But but you're given the Holy Spirit that you might have not only the alien righteousness of Christ, but you might also have the righteousness which comes from God in your own life as we begin to become the people that we're intended to be. doesn't mean we won't have any problems in this life, but, but we need to stay connected and stay connected to him. We need to reckon that everything that he's doing in our lives is not for our glory, but for his. And he doesn't bless us because we're good. He blesses us because we're his children. He blesses us because he loves us and because he wants his holy name to be made known in the earth. And we have to fight the right battles in order to do that because we can fight the wrong battles and we can fight with one another and fuss with one another or we can recognize what's actually going on and we can begin to fight against the power that would actually divide us and ruin the witness of God through the power of the church.